Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. All right, so last week we sort of got a start on Ephesians 2, and it got kind of ragged, so I'm going to actually back up a little and we'll pick it up. Actually, let's just pick it up at the start of 2, and, but really start talking about it by the time we get to 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's all one sentence, at least in my translation. And as we said last time, what he's doing is basically comparing them to the rest of the world and saying that they have been taken out of death and into life, but the rest of the world is still there. And we talked about back in chapter 1 where it's talk, talking about being raised with Christ and that in a, in a sense then is resurrection. Not the resurrection at the end of the age, but a resurrection from the dead nonetheless. So now we're in verse 4, which is where I sort of want to start. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. So that's, again, all one sentence. Gotta love Paul. Now, what that is saying in short form is God, for his own reasons, raised us up with Messiah for the purpose of showing the riches of his grace. That's what all that packs down to. And then, it, you know, as I say, it talks in there about what his purposes were, which is love and, and so forth. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm just trying to get the sentence chopped up into a simple sentence instead of one of Paul's long convoluted sentences. So anyway, the, the, the sentence says, God, for his own reasons, raised us up with Christ so that he might show the riches of his grace. Now, and, and again, we talked about this being seated with him in the heavenly places. And the thing that I mentioned last time is that none of us is physically seated with Christ in heaven. We are all seated down here. And what I did was I likened that to achieving a position or a title. So your position or title is that you are seated with Christ even though you physically aren't there. And the example we used last time is, you know, the king is on the throne even if the king is walking down the street buying fish and chips. 
it's still from the purpose of the, for the purposes of the nation, the king is on the throne, even though he's not physically seated there. So I'm taking this Ephesians passage in that same sense. Now, the thing that Galen mentioned last time, and I want to take a minute and talk about it a little bit more, is this demonstration of the richness of, let me get the thing exactly, in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So the purpose of him doing that is so that he, in the future, could show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And even though Paul describes this as immeasurable, I'm going to suggest that it is measurable and that the immeasurable part is hyperbolic. And the reason I'm saying that is Galen's insight last time is in the age to come or in the future ages, you're going to be able to look out at the mass of the people that God has redeemed and say, wow, look at all of those fruits of his grace. So showing the riches of his grace is by way of being able to look out at the thing that he has redeemed and saying, wow, look at all them folks. Where I will go with that is back to Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon. 1 Kings 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So it sounds like Solomon has got wisdom and understanding maybe just a little bit lower than God, but not much, right? Really, really, really wise, okay? I will suggest to you that that's also hyperbolic. And wisdom in the ancient world was quantifiable. In other words, you could measure it. And the, what the Bible is saying here is Solomon was a heavy hitter in wisdom. And the way you measured wisdom is the number of units of wisdom that you knew. And that was something you could count. What do I mean? Mashalim. Mashalim are units of oriental wisdom, and they are typically in couplets, where you have a part A and a part B, where part B intensifies, clarifies, uh, or explains part A, okay? And a measure of wisdom is how many of these things do you know? And Solomon knew a whole bunch of them because he wrote them down in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So when the Bible says he had wisdom beyond measure, what it's saying is he knew a whole bunch of this oriental wisdom. And in Speaking in hyperbole, the Bible says it was beyond measure. Well, not exactly. It was actually measurable. And so if we take Ephesians, since it's also written by a Hebrew, in the same spirit, what we're talking about is God being able, and all of the powers and principalities being able to look out over this sea of souls that have been purchased by the blood of Messiah and through the grace of God and say, wow, look at how gracious he is. And one of the things that we have 
just as sort of an aside, is we have a Greek understanding of the words of the Bible. And like, for example, Tom asked about this several weeks ago, where it says something will be forever. And it's not. I don't remember the example, but now you do. And the thing is, forever in Greek means what you and I mean by forever. Never stops. Goes on endlessly. It's not what it means in Scripture. The word is olam, and it simply means a really long time. And it gets translated as forever, and then you come to it with a Greek mindset, and you think infinite. And that's not what's going on. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is Paul writing in the same spirit as every other Hebrew who wrote the Bible, is talking about the immeasurable richness of his grace in the same fashion. This will be forever, uh, which doesn't actually mean what the Greeks think it means. Long explanation. So now in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Salvation by grace, why do you suppose that's put in here? Again, as we correlate the parable of the sower and the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation, what's the problem with the Ephesian church? even though they are really, really good biblical scholars and they really are able to discern correct doctrine, by the time Yeshua writes his letter, they have lost their first love. And we talked about that a time or two ago. And since the remedy for having lost their first love is what in Revelation? Yeah, it's repent and do the works you did at first which implies that the problem has to do with something that is happening on the earth, not something that's happening between them and God. It's horizontal, not vertical. These, were, these things were written over a period of 60 years because Yeshua died sometime around 30, right? And he gave the parable of the sower before he died, so that's around 30. John wrote Revelation around 90, Okay, 30 from 90 is 60 years. So the passage is 60 years, and sometime in there, Paul is writing this letter. And I am suggesting to you, it's sort of the the thesis of this particular set of uh, studies, is that those three are connected, related, and inspired by the Holy Spirit so that their content is all of a piece. So when Paul is writing here, he extols their love for the saints. He says, wow, I've heard of your love for the saints. By the time Paul is writing, they have not lost their first love as they will have by the time John is writing. But what I'm suggesting to you is Yeshua, or God, knows what's going to happen, and so he's putting stuff in this letter that is going to be useful to them by the time they get to Revelation. In other words, I'm saying it's all written by the same being, even though the instrument they use is Paul here, Yeshua, Yeshua. So what he's saying here is 
the problem that you're going to have by the time we get to Revelation is a cold heart. And one of the things I'm suggesting is he's warning them about here is, guys, this salvation that you're enjoying is not because you're such hot rocks as, as biblical scholars. And it's not because you're really good at doctrine. It's because of the grace of God and it is simply a gift. So don't get so hoity-toity. Again, what did we say the remedy for coldness of heart was by the time we get to Revelation? Turn to the works you've done. So now we have in verse 10 in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for good works. In other words, the thing that you're supposed to be doing is good works, which is stuff you do for people, not stuff you do in the reading scripture between you and God. Reading scripture between you and God is a vertical thing, and it's wonderful, and everybody should do it. But there's also the horizontal thing, which is good works that you do among men. And so, again, what I'm suggesting to you is this is a prepositioned before they're going to need it. So before they get their rebuke and warning for Yeshua, this is prepositioned so they can look at it and say, hmm, this salvation that we have is nothing we can be proud of because we didn't do anything to get it. And the reason we've got it is supposed to, so we're able to go out and do good works among men. Again, my own bunny. I am coming to the opinion that the extreme emphasis on grace and the downplaying, often to the extent of denigration of works, I think what it winds up doing is hijacking the people of God so they aren't doing the stuff that he wants us to do. Where are we? Verse 11. All right, now we're going to change things a little bit. The emphasis is going to change. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what he's saying here is you used to be Gentiles and you were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, okay? that, which is the circumcision. And he's talking specifically about the circumcision that is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, made by a memorial on the eighth day. So what he's talking about is observant Jew, or not necessarily observant, but ethnic Jews who are circumcised and who consider themselves separate from the Gentiles. And it's interesting, the Jews consider themselves separate from the Gentiles, and it's one of those definitions that the Gentiles accept. In other words, when a Jew divides the world into Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles say, oh yeah, that's right, you're Jews and we're Gentiles. They don't say, wait a minute, I'm not a Gentile, I'm a Swede, or I'm an Italian, or I'm a Russian, or I'm a, no, I'm a Gentile. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really odd. But anyway, while you were, you were separated from Christ and you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So who has the covenants of promise? Israel. Except for the covenant with Noah, there are no covenants in scripture that I know of that are made with Gentiles. Now, it talks, remember we talked last time about God's inheritance. 
And in Psalm, I don't remember what Psalm it was, it says that the nations are God's inheritance. And again, that only, that's the only place that appears is in one of the Psalms that I know of. And the notion of Israel being God's inheritance is all throughout the Tanakh. And those are the ones that he made this, the covenants with. And, and especially in the sense we're talking about here, that's what Paul's talking about. Are the covenants that are made with Israel and the fact that they do not include Gentiles and that the Ephesians, who used to be Gentiles, were outside of those covenants, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and they therefore had no hope. Verse 13. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Brought near to what? Therefore the thing that they are brought near to is the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 14. For he himself is our, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is this abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Does that mean that he has done away with the Torah. The, the answer from all over the room was he's shredding oral Torah. And that may be what he's talking about. That is entirely possible and that's a good answer. It may mean something else, however. Remember that we've said that the covenants written in stone are written in the wrong place. They were written in stone at Sinai because there was a betrothal and there was supposed to have been the consummation of a marriage. And as God was standing on the mountain, he was going to speak his word into the heart of Israel, writing his word on tablets of flesh. The bride said, no, stop. Moses, you go find out what he has to say and bring it back to us and then we'll do it. That's when we got tablets of stone. So one of the things that may be being said here is the thing that's being shredded are the tablets of stone. And the new man is the new heart. The Torah, which is the teaching of God, which is the way he organizes his universe, is not being done away with. It's simply being taken off the tablets of stone where it doesn't belong and being written on hearts of flesh where it does belong. All the statements of the New Covenant, from Deuteronomy to Isaiah to Ezekiel to Jeremiah, Every place the New Covenant is stated, it talks in terms of getting the words off the rocks and getting them onto the human heart. So that very well may be what it, it, it could also be Oral Torah. I mean, I, I don't have any problem with Oral Torah either, but I think that may be what he's talking about here. And to sort of round up on this, remember back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he was talking about you have the Holy Spirit as an earnest or a marker or a claim check for your inheritance. Remember we talked about that under chapter 1. Now I, I have always asserted and will continue to assert we are not living under the new covenant. And what we have is the Holy Spirit as our claim check or marker that when the new heaven and the new earth show up we have a place there and we are a member of the commonwealth of Israel. Israel. So what he's doing here is he's saying 
that the thing that is making that claim check possible and the thing that is making the new covenant possible is the shedding of the blood of Messiah because a covenant requires the shedding of blood. So you, he's told us up front we've got an inheritance there. Now what he's telling us down here is what's going to be happening when we get there. The idea there is, and he says it other places, and he says there's neither male nor female nor Jew nor Greek. He says that in another letter. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about once you receive your inheritance, in other words, the, the, the deal is struck, the covenant's been signed, we just haven't taken possession yet. And when you do take possession, and the Torah is finally written on your heart, then all of this other stuff will follow. Because there's a lot of things that he talks about as a done deal, which everybody here knows experientially, that ain't the way it is. And so what I'm suggesting to you is he's saying, when you come into your inheritance, you will have the Torah written on your heart, the wall will be broken down, you will all be one people, one nation under God. All right, where am I doing? 17. Sounds good to me. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And by the way, you all know this, the whole purpose of the ministry of Messiah is access to the Father. Verse 19. So when you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are the saints. Israel. Israel. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. And if you look at the New Jerusalem, who's the foundation? Twelve stones, which are the apostles. I looked it up. The twelve tribes of the gates, the apostles of the foundation stone. So again, he is completely consistent here with Revelation. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now notice he is not talking about each one of us individually being the dwelling place of God. What he's talking about is a building, an edifice. And the edifice, we are the stones. And together as the stones of that edifice, we then construct a place for God to dwell, i.e. the temple of the Mishkan. Chapter 3. Aha! Thought we'd never get there. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Messiah Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So this sentence in my translation is incomplete. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua on behalf of you Gentiles, then you have an ellipsis, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. In other words, he's assuming that you've heard that I have been authorized by the home church in Jerusalem to go talk to you Gentiles. We divided the territory up. Peter got the Jews. I got the Gentiles. And I'm assuming you've heard of that. God's grace that was given to me for you 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. So he's going to talk about a mystery here, and he's also referring to the fact that he got his knowledge by revelation directly from Messiah, not from men. And he explains that more fully in the book of Galatians. Remember in the book of Galatians, the, the problem is you got people from the home office coming around purporting to tell them some stuff that Paul doesn't agree with. And so he goes through his credentials in, a, in Galatians. And he says, I did not get this from anybody. I got it directly from Messiah. And he's sort of referring to that obliquely here. Four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in their generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's about to talk about a mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. So what he's doing is he's laying out a mystery for them. And remember, he's, he started off this thing about talking to them about the fact that they're brought near and they used to be strangers to and alienated from the commonwealth and so forth and now he's telling them a mystery and he's saying that mystery was not known and I am revealing it to you the fact that you are fellow heirs and members of the same body and I'm going to read a little further and then I'm going to go some places with this verse 7 of this gospel what gospel yeah yeah the gospel is a generic term that simply means good news and it means different things when it's used in different places here grammatically it's referring to the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs that's the good news that we're talking about here there's other good news other places of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So he's talking about a mystery that has been planned and has been hidden until now. You know, it was planned before the creation of the earth, but it is now being revealed. It's being revealed through the apostles. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Bottom line. That's the bottom line. All of this is an elaborate plan that God set up before the foundation of the earth so that his wisdom might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Because remember, he is dealing with a rebellion. God is dealing with a rebellion. And so what he's done is he has set up this plan in order to demonstrate his power and his wisdom to the rebels. And, oh, by the way, to the, people who aren't, or to the ones who aren't rebelling either. I mean, all of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are going to get this. So the question is why? And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's pick it up at the beginning, chapter, chapter 2. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Yeshua Messiah and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so, again, I'm suggesting to you we have a correlation between the power of God here and the power of God as being described in Ephesians. But again, Paul is saying, any son of a gun with a three-day pass and a briefcase and a good line of patter can come through and convince people of anything. Witness Galatians. And I decided not to do that. I decided to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit instead. Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's saying, I didn't come speaking in the wisdom of men. Parenthesis, he is a wise man. Paul is wise. But he says, I didn't come to you using that. And then he says, yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. In other words, I will give my wisdom to those of you who are mature. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Remember, that's where we left off in Ephesians. So it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I will suggest to you that we're talking about exactly the same thing we're talking about in Ephesians. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So putting those two pieces of scripture together, God, dealing with a rebellion, devised a plan. And that plan was that through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, born of a woman, died, was raised from the dead, shed his blood in heaven, and is now sitting at the right hand. Through that process, the Gentiles, which is to say the whole world, is going to be brought into the inheritance of God. And we've been talking about inheritance in Ephesians. You know, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got a marker, you're in there. And what Paul is saying in Corinthians is if these rebels had known what was going to happen, they would never have crucified Messiah. They would have let him go off for another 80 years and died a natural death because he wouldn't have been as effective. He wouldn't have been able to do the thing that God had made him to do except through his own death. And if the powers and principalities had realized that, they would have done everything they could to prevent that guy from dying unnaturally. Again, the, the thing that he's saying in Ephesians and he's saying in Corinthians is that the thing that was hidden from the foundation of the world is not that the Messiah would come. That's testified in Scripture. Not that he would die. That's testified in Scripture. Not that there would be a resurrection. That's testified in the Scriptures. The thing that was hidden was that that death, burial, and resurrection was going to affect 
the ability of the Gentiles to come in. That's the thing that was hidden. The mystery is that in that process, all of a sudden, the doors are open, the gates are open, and the Gentiles can now come in. Let me see if I can get through the, through the paragraph anyway. So, coming back now to Ephesians, verse 10. So that through the church, or the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Messiah Yeshua our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I think we'll probably quit there. I don't, I'm not going to get through another six verses in five minutes. So, so to sort of wrap up, what he's been saying to the Ephesians now is your salvation is a gift, not by works that you can boast, the purpose of the salva- your salvation is so that you can go out and do good works. And I suggested that that instruction is prepositioned because by the time they get to Revelation, they, they seem to have lost the horizontal dimension of their relationship. It's all vertical. And then he has said also that the reason for your salvation is so that God could demonstrate his wisdom to the powers and rulers of this age and in the age to come. Would somebody like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.